Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Australia and other countries have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of resources in places around the world like Afghanistan uh, trying to fight uh, various uh, movements, you might call terrorist movements, in, a, in what was initially termed the War on Terror uh, post uh, the 9-11 uh, attacks in the United States. Right now, there are people who helped Australians um, live and survive in what is a fairly volatile landscape in Afghanistan for whom uh, assistance is being sought by several, several advocates. The situation in Afghanistan is changing daily. The Taliban are gaining ground. And anyone that is even remotely associated with assisting Western powers is in deep trouble. Bureaucrats in Australia aren't necessarily moving as quickly as some of the people who are advocating on the behalf of uh, locally engaged employees and ADF uh, interpreters, people who place themselves in a sense in harm's way to help Australians in that particular field of battle or, or in that particular country. Someone who has a relevant uh, view on this is Pat Ryan. He was a former facilities manager at the Australian Embassy over 2011 to 2012. He engaged with people who were employed at the time and he's taken up their cause with the Australian government. I'll let him tell you all about the situation and where things are at. Pat, thank you for joining me. Tom, great to be with you. Now, it's important that people understand the context of the situation before we go into the specifics of what the people you worked with uh, in Afghanistan are going through right now. Can you describe what your role was uh, at the embassy? Yeah, um, I was engaged by uh, an Afghan construction company that had uh, the facilities management contract with the embassy uh, during its construction and then after it was opened in uh, late 2011 by Julia Gillard. Uh, and my role was to establish the uh, facilities management uh, department, which included engineering services, general maintenance um, at uh, one of the consular buildings uh, and uh, I guess um, some other aspects to that included procurement of services that the, uh, the diplomatic mission may not have had at the time and to get the show up and running and stabilise it and support it. And of course, uh, central to that support for uh, DFAT's mission uh, and AUSAID's mission in Afghanistan were uh, our Afghan employees. Uh, they were uh, our enablers. Even our own uh, company, uh, owned by Australians and Americans who had experience in war zones, knew from the get-go that we could not operate in Afghanistan without uh, supportive local staff. Uh, it's critical to the relationships in that country that 
are required to conduct business and to maintain uh, our own security. Uh, so it's very important from the start that I make that quite clear. Um, I'll throw that back to you. I think in the, the, there's no one that um, from you know, Australia particularly, but that had the the, the ground knowledge I mean, and the full understanding of how to speak Arabic and all that sort of all that sort of jazz, right? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And that that's really important to recognise that Afghanistan is uh, um, culturally, uh, geographically, uh, and in many other ways, so different to Australia and indeed many other Western countries. Is uh, Dari, which is a derivative of uh, Persian Farsi, uh -huh. uh, and Pashto, and then there are a number of other local languages like uh, Hazara and uh, Amak, and a few other different tongues. And there are dialects between the east and the west of Afghanistan. And of course, when you have a situation where so many people have come from the provinces into Kabul, um, you're dealing with people within the country who are ethnically diverse and speak different dialects. So the idea of an Australian being able to go in there and do business without, you know, the help of local people is, is yeah, it's kind of comedic, you know, you'd be having yourself on. Um, so the relationships are critical. You need good people. When you engage with them and they were sort of taken on, what are the kinds of undertakings that um, are given to these guys? Because it, it, you know, there's no there would never have been a guarantee over the long term that. The political situation in Afghanistan, which existed in 2011 and 2012, would always remain. Yeah. Now, that's something that has evolved um, over the course of the, the 20 years of occupation uh, in Afghanistan by coalition forces. Um, I think back in 2011 and 12, I mean, I arrived in Kabul the day after Bernhardine Rabani uh, was assassinated by, uh, I think they were Yemeni journalists. And, you know, the, the city was in a state of uh, chaos, I guess. Uh, it was a bit insecure. And at that time, I think that may have been a turning point uh, because Rabani was one of the few people who could... Um, sort of unite all of the various factions uh, in Afghanistan. And then going beyond that time towards 2014, where we saw the withdrawal of coalition troops um, and then the following six years to this point uh, where, you know, there was a, a mentoring presence, I suppose, uh, technical assistance presence and diplomatic presence. Mm -hmm. um, I think 
the the goalposts on any undertakings to uh, protect our mission essential personnel ha uh, shifted. But I, I didn't see any change in Australia's uh, special migration legislation with the uh, Lee humanitarian visas and who was eligible for those visas in the event that we did withdraw, uh, undergo any review or amendment uh, to suit the uh, approaching complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, I think at least since last year, uh, that withdrawal became imminent. It was quite evident in at least US policy that it was going to happen. Um, but I think it's happened so quickly that it's caught quite a few people by surprise, including our own government. If we then look at, um, if we bring it to the situation as it exists today, the US clearly flagged it's moving. Australia is moving along with the states. Um, there are a group of people, correct me if I'm wrong, but about 140 that are um, at, at what I would call high risk. Um, where, what's the situation like on the ground right now? Well, at the present time, we have a group of around about 140 um, locally employed staff uh, who worked for the various um, contractors who supplied services to the embassy, like security and uh, facilities management, um, catering services, that sort of thing. Um, they probably number in, in that order. Uh, I would also mention that we have, I think, about 280-odd uh, former ADF interpreters and enablers left in country, scattered around the country there. Um, so there's a fair contingent. And if you add their family members to those two groups, you, you're probably talking somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people who are at imminent and grave risk of the worst kind of persecution and uh, extermination by uh, the Taliban for having, as the Taliban say, eaten from the bread of the infidel uh, and therefore they are traitors and they should be killed. Now, I think many of your listeners may have seen, uh, you know, Taliban or ISIS execution videos. They're not pretty. Um, so the people that I'm in contact with, my former uh, colleagues and associates um, from the security forces that protected our embassy, I'm in touch with them on a daily basis. And they are, I think it, the best description would be paralysed with anxiety and finding it difficult to negotiate their way through uh, visa certification processes and uh, having plan Bs for 
escaping the country if Australia does not expedite their protection. Now, you mentioned um, the various uh, videos, propaganda videos, and, and, and videos of specific incidents. Um, I think the, yeah, there are, um, let's not put a too fine a point on it, the material that these groups publish and release to get compliance uh, from citizens to paralyze people in fear is extremely graphic. Um, and it's not the kind of thing that, it, there is no way in which, if I may put it this way, Pat, it even, that, that material um, compares with the rather lame effort that was publicised by a Chinese foreign foreign official last November. Um, the guys in the Middle East actually uh, use real footage and, and, and real material to scare the hell out of people. Um, the, this then leads naturally on to the next question. You've got a cohort that is very nervous about what their future what, what their future holds. Where is the government at in this country, to your knowledge, right now? What's happened so far? I think uh, as far as our government's position, it's it's five minutes to midnight. And they are still shuffling paper uh, in Canberra, uh, attempting to uh, duplicate processes of security vetting uh, and validating biometric data that they have possessed for the last decade uh, for these workers who enabled their mission. Um, and doing so uh, in ignorance of the rapidly escalating humanitarian crisis of their own creation. Um, I know that sounds uh, very strong, but in reality, I, I mean, literally with the, the stories that I'm hearing in recent days, it very much sounds like they're running some sort of Afghan life-saving lottery. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to the um, certifications that are being uh, completed for these people. Um, where the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, has said that they are affording the highest uh, priority of processing uh, I fail to see how there's any priority or, or order uh, to their processes. And I think the fact that they are not reacting to a humanitarian crisis in the way that they would with a tsunami in Asia or a cyclone in the Pacific uh, and putting the, the bureaucratic processes aside and deploying the ADF and other humanitarian agencies immediately in Kabul to evacuate these people to 
a safe location, such as Al Minhad Air Base in the UAE, uh, where they can be comfortably accommodated and then engage in the necessary bureaucratic processes to satisfy uh, the Australian government that these people are um, legitimate claims for asylum and are safe to be brought to Australia and considered for resettlement. One of the things that I need to ask you is, that obviously, uh, people who are engaged to work at an embassy will have gone through um, various security checks, uh, various, various sort of, uh, processes of due diligence. Uh, where are those records located now? Um, well, this is where there's, uh, I think, a need for the, the government to be a little bit more transparent about their relationship with these guys um, and ladies, I should say. Um, the security vetting that they undergo in Afghanistan um, is conducted by their employers. Uh, in the case of the security guards, they are major private security companies like Garda World and Heart Security, who have contractual relationships with DFAT. Um, they go to uh, the Ministry of Interior in, uh, sorry, Ministry of the MOI, the Ministry of Interior, I think it is in Afghanistan, who has a, uh, a criminal records checking uh, department. And they have been, for many years now, supported by ISAF mentors who have trained them in the use of biometrics and uh, security vetting processes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they issue a certification to uh, the private security companies. Uh, that information is then shared with uh, DFAT and particularly within DFAT, the diplomatic security branch. So I guess to answer the question uh, in a nutshell, yes, DFAT know who they are. They've already been biometrically uh, checked and uh, security cleared uh, with the support of, if you like, Team America, uh, who major... Um, partners in ISAF. Um, and then those security clearances are reviewed regularly through uh, the term of employment for any employee. So how, often, think, how often would they be reviewed, Pat? Are you able to give us an idea? Uh, look, from what I understand, every two years, uh, or if there's any change in role for an employee. Okay, so... Let me, let me see if I understand the state of play before we go on. The individuals we're talking about, the 140-odd, have gone through security clearance, have gone through various tests, and they've been deemed to be suitable to work in, um, in the environment of an Australian embassy. 
and those details should logically be somewhere in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Is that, do I understand it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you're right on the point there. Um, and this is, uh, you know, in terms of advocating for these guys, and we are, you know, in the process of um, negotiating class legal representation for them here at the moment, is that um, we're quite confident that uh, DFAT and Home Affairs have the information they require to be satisfied that they are um, adequately vetted for consideration for resettlement in Australia uh, or a third country, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, this idea, this narrative that uh, Minister Dutton and Minister Payne and Hawke come out with, that they have to engage in these rigorous processes, is really, I think, only um, trying to buy them time. Uh, and I think possibly a result of um, DFAT perhaps not doing their job in terms of uh, good record keeping. Uh, the, the problem with that situation, the problem with you know, you know, knowing as you would the, the circumstances and the individuals and, and the fact they've gone through all of that is while people are playing paper games or searching for material, um, they ignore one one very profound reality, and that is, you know, in essence, a Taliban a Taliban bullet can, can move more quickly than the Australian bureaucracy. I mean, it, it's that blunt, isn't it? It is. Look, there's a few points to raise here. I mean, one is um, <laughs> patently obvious. Um, the idea that DFAT now has the same kind of working relationship with the Afghan ministries that they had before we more or less abandoned the country is kind of delusional. So if you're relying on an ongoing relationship with uh, the Afghan Ministry of uh, Information, providing the same level of support uh, now that we don't have a presence in the country without their ISAF mentors is frankly pretty thin. Um, the ministries themselves are in the same state of decline as the rest of Afghanistan. The place is rapidly falling to the Taliban. Uh, obviously, people in uh, you know senior Afghan officials are approaching the Australian government for the same protection that we're seeking for the security guards and ancillary staff at the embassy. Uh, therefore, the only information available to Australia to security vet these people is the information they already have. Then why can't they find it? Uh, look, I think it's there. Um, it's just a case of uh, whether they have the in-house talent uh, to process it swiftly and come to 
uh, a sound decision. Mm. Um, as I said, you know, when we, we started, um, the one thing that DFAT lacks because of the way they operated in Afghanistan is they uh, lived in a highly secure environment within a compound and they were transported in uh, armoured vehicles. Individual DFAT officers, with a possible few exceptions, um, had very little opportunity to build uh, any sort of relationship with uh, the staff that we're talking about. Um, therefore, in the absence of having those uh, relationships, their ability to communicate directly with these people and uh, get the information they need to make decisions is quite limited. And at the moment, they're basically dealing with them at the end of an email address. And if you look at some of the replies that these people get to their applications for certification, they're not even signed by a DFAT officer with their name and a contact telephone number. Why? Any idea? Um, I have a few insights into why. Uh, I think that they're fearful that if they give uh, that kind of access that their information systems will be overloaded. Uh, I guess they're worried about probity and individual officers being uh, potentially compromised through um, sense of compassion for people who are obviously in distress. Mm. Uh, there could be any number of factors. Um, my own experience of dealing with government is increasingly they work in glass towers with secure car parks, uh, security guards at the reception desk and electronic kiosks. Um, Increasingly, they don't answer telephones or reply to emails. Um, it, it's very much a, a trend in government, I think, to isolate themselves from the people that they represent and do business with. What are the next steps? Because it clearly time is of the essence. Uh, we... We see daily reports from different media, including, uh, I think, the ABC as well, on the changing ground game in Afghanistan uh, when uh, certain groups like the Taliban, Islamic State, and you know, even Al-Qaeda uh, get, uh, get the ball rolling, they tend to move very quickly. What are you? Uh, what What is your next move in terms of um, trying to get a bit of uh, action uh, with respect to the 140 we've referred to uh, in coming days? Well, I think as you you know you pointed out the issue of time there. What we have is a rapidly deteriorating security situation and increase of threat level to these people. And at the same time, we have the Australian government moving very slowly and 
contributing to that level of threat. Um, you don't have to be a master strategist to see the potential outcome. Uh, mm. In terms of the next move, um, I would hope that uh, DFAT and, uh, well, I guess the ministers uh, involved, like Dutton, Bork and Payne, would reach out to the same um, contracting companies and their employees like myself and other people with experience in Afghanistan, like Dr. Kay Danes, who's been on your program recently, uh, and an associate of mine, and utilise our uh, relationships with these people uh, to help them make a rapid decision about mounting a humanitarian mission to protect them uh, and utilise our skills and relationships uh, in negotiating that operation uh, with the beneficiaries. Um, mm. And I think beyond that, um, probably, you know, I, I hope that they would make the process uh, for them a little easier. I mean, we saw um, on the 28th of May a policy walk back on the contracted staff who DFAT had previously said were not eligible for the special Lee humanitarian visa as a result of media reports in Australia with them protesting outside the embassy as it was being closed, all of a sudden offered access to that program after they'd been appealing for access to it since 2014. Um, then only last week we saw Minister Payne come out on ABC radio and say that only the employees uh, with the closest relationships, uh, locally engaged staff directly employed by DFAT, would be offered access to that Lee Special Humanitarian Visa Program. Now, that's a complete backflip. Uh, in the intervening month, we've had uh, all of the security guards and ancillary staff running around Kabul thinking that they all needed passports and waiving their application documents and bribing uh, immigration officials in Afghanistan to give them their passports. Now, it wasted a lot of time, um, only to be told that they're not eligible for the visa that they're applying for certification to obtain. I mean, it, it's Kafkaesque. It, uh, it's disingenuous. I mean, we, we've got to be straight up with them. We've got to be very clear about what we can offer them. And whatever it is, it has to be done quickly. There is um, something that occurs to me as we explore these issues currently relevant to the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a lot of media coverage on this situation. Uh, and there'll be records of 
the material you know, published kept for a very long time. If things do not progress the way you would like and then uh, the worst does happen, what does that mean for Australians who might go into other parts of the world at another point in time, looking at engaging locals in other jurisdictions? Well, I think, as I pointed out um, in a document recently, uh, that there are several compelling reasons for Australia to treat this as a humanitarian issue rather than an issue of uh, national security and migration policy. Um, one compelling reason is that if we don't do the right thing here and protect these people, and they are persecuted, um, then it exposes us to criticism by adversarial states whom we have criticised for their human rights track record. Uh, so we are, I think, you know, maybe breaking our own standards uh, quicker than we can invent them here. Um, I think we need to stop shifting the goalposts around and make our position very clear, whatever that may be. And I would hope that we don't tarnish our already uh, slightly shabby international human rights record, you know, in respect to things like offshore detention, by uh, staining it with the blood of these people who have enabled our mission in Afghanistan and served us, in some cases, loyally for a decade. The, there is a, another issue that uh, comes to mind as well. Um, let me put the proposition somewhat bluntly. Um, if the worst does happen, should Australians be surprised if locals in any other jurisdiction refuse to engage with us? Uh, I don't think we should be surprised at all, Tom. I think, uh, and I've been saying this for a number of years now, that uh, we're in danger of being seen as the, the mercenaries of the South Pacific. Um, now, mercenaries use assets and burn them, you know. Are we a nation with uh, a proud military and foreign affairs history or are we a ragtag pack of people that will go anywhere and fight any cause uh, and leave a trail of bloodshed and burnt bridges behind us? And that's probably a good question for people to reflect on and a convenient, uh, a convenient way to wrap uh, this conversation about a very serious issue up. 
Pat, is there anything that anyone that's listening to this is is able to do? Are there any petitions online? Are there any are there any uh, rallying points that anyone that feels moved to contact a, a group uh, that may be acting in this space? Look, absolutely. There's a few things you can do. Uh, there's currently a parliamentary petition up uh, for the protection of our mission essential personnel. Uh, so maybe we can put a link up um, for that. There's also uh, the wonderful organisation ForsakenFighters.org.au run by uh, my associate, uh, Captain Jason Skeynes, um, who is advocating for the uh, Australian Defence Force interpreters and has been fighting their cause now for a number of years. Uh, and I think also, uh, you know, people shouldn't be frightened to... Um, send an email to their local MP. Uh, don't be frightened to write to uh, foreign minister or to the cabinet and uh, also to talk to the shadow ministers for foreign affairs like Penny Wong uh, about this issue and express their opinion. Um, you know, a, a well-worded email to a minister often carries a lot more weight than a brief comment on social media. And that, uh, Pat, is a, is a great way to, to wrap things up. Thank you for joining me to talk through uh, what is probably one of the more controversial issues kicking around today. So appreciate your time. Tom, been an absolute pleasure, and I really thank you for your interest and uh, this opportunity. And thank you.